Hello and welcome to another exciting episode of The Lewis and Kyle Show, an interview podcast where we have conversations with fascinating entrepreneurs, investors, and experts in a huge variety of topics. Today, I had the pleasure of chatting with Rob Moore, the founder of a company called Churnkey. Churnkey, if you don't know, is a platform that helps SaaS businesses, that's software as a service, massively reduce their churn. That means preventing existing customers from leaving with a whole lot of important techniques that most businesses either don't know how to implement or don't have the time to implement. In this conversation, we discuss what some of those strategies are. And in addition, we of course get into Rob's backstory from his very first days as an indie hacker and his very first side projects, all the way to co-founding at Churnkey and the things he's doing today. We discuss how he got independent consultant projects for the NBA. We discuss becoming the co-founder from one of his previous projects based on an Upwork job. And if you've listened to the podcast before, you'll know that we cover a whole lot more. It was a blast having this conversation with Rob, and I am pumped for you to listen. So without any more from me, I will switch over now. Enjoy. Rob, welcome to the podcast. I have a lot to chat with you about. I'm super excited for this. I'm excited to be here as well. Just uh, shut down the work for the day. So excited to chat with you. Not in that same headspace. That's the fun thing about these intercontinental podcasts, if you will, these cross-Atlantic, transatlantic podcasts. Yeah, so yeah, I... um. So I'm in London now and I still work mostly with US partners and it's nice because I've got a few hours in the morning to just kind of get stuff done before, you know, customer support requests and stuff start coming in. So it's been nice being over here. Good to be here. Yeah, that is true. I want to, we'll get to Turnkey. I want to ask you about like your first proper entrepreneurial SaaS startup that you started. Like what was that idea and where were you yeah, in life so, when you launched it? Yeah, yeah. It's interesting. When I was just wrapping up with the university and I was applying to a bunch of jobs at big tech companies, you know, your, your fang type companies and was lucky enough to get some offers there. But it was something that I just couldn't really see myself doing, at least not immediately. I wanted to try things out for myself. And my first delve into working for myself was on Fiverr. And I was a developer, so I had only been coding for three years. I know a lot of coders start, you know, very young, but I didn't start until about halfway through college. And I kind of niched down into data visualization, which ended up being very important for me, finding that niche. And I would sell gigs on Fiverr. So literally $5 for an hour of data viz development work, like way underpriced, but just getting that, you know, that first income that I made for myself was a completely different experience. And one thing led to another. Um, I started doing bigger contract work for, for some people I found through Upwork. One of the companies I ended up working for for many years and, and came on actually as co-owner of that company. But that's a little bit of a different story with Wave. But I would say, yeah, first off, going out on my own versus an employee route was very important for me to have a niche in data visualization work. It's something there where, you know, you cut down on the competition, you cut down on all of these um, asks for development work or whatever work. They always have so many different applicants and just a way to separate yourself from everyone else. So I would go out and I would do a ton of work for $5 and just eventually the reviews started coming in. Word of mouth referrals was very important for me early on. Can we add some uh, like quantification to the timeline between graduating college, selling hourly work, unless you're working like more hours than there are in a week. It's difficult for me to believe that you're able to support yourself with five hour gigs for very long. Like what was the amount yeah. of time elapsed yeah. between like five hours, five dollars per hour for like gig work and okay, I'm actually now kind of confident I can support myself as a freelancer. Yeah, yeah. So I did, I spent about, the summer, maybe a little bit more. So like four months doing gig work. And it for me, it moved up very quickly, which was fortunate. And it went from $5 and then I was charging probably $35 within two months for per hour. And still as a contractor, you know, you don't have these, these contracts lined up. You spend a lot of time finding them. $35 an hour is, is still probably not enough to pay the bills. Um, so it was at that time where some of the people that I worked with were asking about full-time work or close to full-time work. So I ended up working a closer to a full-time gig with one of those companies, and that was called Wave, which was a podcast marketing tool. And at the same time, I was doing part-time work there. I still had some, some student debt to repay. So I did end up taking a 
full-time job um, alongside the contract work. So I, I went out to Seattle. I was working at a data visualization startup. And then nights and weekends, I was working on Wave. So these are the people that hired me as a contractor. And I think for, for me, from the mindset there of a couple months prior, just not wanting to go into this full-time employee mode, having this other project to work on nights and weekends and having it very, very practical and very much in the sense like this is what I'm doing and coming on as, as a contractor there instead of like the main founder was really important for me, I think. Because a lot of times you get into the situation where, you know, you want to be building towards something bigger. And at the end of the day or on the weekends when you actually have time, and even if you have energy on those days, if you don't have something very specific to put that energy into, it can be difficult. So for me, having somebody else do all of that founder type thinking in the beginning and just as a, as a contractor coming on more like, okay, this is your task-based thing that you're, you're trying to tackle. And having that as a, a nights and weekends thing was much more practical for me than going full-time or sorry, going right into the starting a company from scratch on nights and weekends. And it also, I mean, that company was was size of three. So it's not like it was contract work in the sense of I'm just like checking things off. It was this nice balance of doing task-based work, but also being part of the team in the sense of, you know, decision-making and, and going through that process. Yeah, we have someone very much in that exact capacity on our team right now who has a full-time software engineering job. And that does a lot of does a lot of contract work for us, but is also very much part of the team in terms of like on standups, on overall strategy, overall product discussion, you know, contributing to aspects that are not in his lane at all in terms of in a good way, right? In terms of like contributing to the whole of it, the whole vision. It's it's a cool hybrid yeah. stage that works for people depending on where they are in life and where the company is too in terms of maturity. Because also like three person headcount. Yeah, for sure. And it and for me, it with this small company, me and uh, two other guys, it really gave me confidence in what is possible with a small team. And it, and it showed me what you can do. So Wave, just to talk a little bit about that, is a podcast marketing tool. You may have seen, they're called audiograms. Basically, it takes your audio and it creates a little animated waveform, turning your audio into a video so that you can share it on you know Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, wherever else. And to me, the, the most intriguing part of that was it's fundamentally a simple product, right? We built something that was of concrete value and we productized it and we were able to sell it. But it's not like we were reinventing Google or Amazon or anything else, right? It was very much, okay, we've created this software business and we've done a good job marketing. Marketing was very important for that tool, but it just seeing that a very specific but focused value proposition can really pay dividends. And we ended up growing that product to about $130,000 in revenue per month. And for me to see that, it just it just gave me and, and the other two guys a lot of confidence going forward that, yes, we can do this and we can really better ourselves moving forward. And what was the size of the team when you started having those $100,000 months? So there was three of us, um, three co-owners, and then we would hire out contract workers for sometimes for some extra developer hands or for customer support for marketing help and content generation. That makes sense. Yeah, this is something we were talking about briefly before we got started. But one of the things I most personally benefit from from this podcast that's really been internalized for me and like a lesson I want to be translated to other people is just like software businesses, startups in general are not just like the next Google, the next XYZ. It's just like so small and specific, like podcasts into clips, an audio format with a nice visualization. That's a million dollar career business with only six people. And that's a lot of money to go around with, with six people. And yeah, it absolutely is. And it's funny you mentioned that exact thing because where you can, you know, develop something very small of value. I was actually so bullish about this idea of, okay, I want to empower other indie developers and other indie entrepreneurs to develop their own small microservices, these, these micro companies. And from there, I started another company and this, this company doesn't have a happy ending, but I think it was, it's a great learning lesson for me and kind of about the assumptions I made. But this company was called Flume, F-L-O-O-M. And the entire idea behind this was that I want to make it really easy for developers to productize and monetize whatever they're building. So like if you go out there and you create a little 
app. Some, one of the most successful ones, for instance, on Plume was something that turned a tweet into a little video that looked like somebody was typing out the tweet. So you would input the, the tweet URL and it would, it would give you back a video that you could share on Instagram. Um, I love this niche of uh, content repurposing. There's just yeah, infinite, exactly. in, infinite content repurposing micro SaaS ideas out there. Right, there, there really are. And so the idea here would be, okay, there's, there's a ton of developers out there. And what's frustrating about anyone, not just developers, but anyone starting a business, the frustrating thing is that we all want it to be this build it and they will come solution where we can build something amazing and people will just come in and start paying for it. And it's so much not the case. It's so much of marketing and branding and it takes time, which is frustrating, but it's, it's the reality of the situation. So what Flume did and what it was aspired to do was create a marketplace for these very small products where people would come and find other small products. So it would take out the marketing aspect for you because people would, it would have some searchability. And it also handled all of the billing and subscription management. So you would just, you know, put in your bank account and you wouldn't have to deal with, with Stripe or setting up subscriptions or anything. And I founded this as it was a solo founder project and it was a marketplace. And these two things don't really go together. It was mm -hmm. something where, you know, I was trying to get other developers to list their, their services on there. And then I was also trying to find buyers at the same time. And it was not funded. And doing a marketplace as a solo founder, not funded, it was, it was just, it was never destined to work out. I think it was, it was too big of a chunk to bite out at that time. And it's an idea I'm still intrigued by, right? Like I still think there are ways that we need to empower people to more easily start businesses and, and lower that threshold of, of energy and money that you need to start a business. I still think that's, there are solutions that are going to be out there, but at the time it was not something that I was able to, you know, bootstrap and, and build up. I've been really enjoying a lot of different people I've been learning from in terms of like different paths to like kind of stair-step style solopreneurship, just like accumulating different small pieces of it at a time, like different skills that you like add to it. There's someone we had on the podcast recently. His name's Alex. He has a no-code SaaS called Closeify, which is effectively, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it's a marketplace, funny enough, but he's not a solo founder. He, he already had distribution for it when he started, which helps a lot of the cold start problem with a marketplace if you have distribution. But it is a matchmaking app for closers, basically just commission-only sales reps and companies that need commission-only sales reps. And so, right, two sides, the talents and the companies. And the whole thing's just built, no code, super low budget in terms of the, at least the MVP. And, you know, makes like, made like several millions of dollars a year in revenue from this like no code app. And he basically has a community now where he's teaching people like no code startup. Because again, I think what we're going to discover and what we've been talking about in this conversation a lot is like, what's more important is did you come up with a thing that solves a problem and delivers like a unique solution? So it's not like his like software company was so amazing. It was just like he made it easier for companies to find talents and for talent to find jobs in this nation. Like software was the, the mechanism for it. Again, it's like the same thing about the, this might be like the hard thing, especially for technical people to hear, right? It's like the technical work that I imagine that you had a big role in, in terms of like, how do I turn audio into a cool graphic, right? In terms of data, like that's not the outcome that people care about is the, you made it easier for me to get more eyeballs on my podcast. And like you solved the problem in, in that respect. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's, that's hundred percent spot on. I think like for me, I'm a, I'm a developer, right? I'm, I'm, but for me, the fascinating part about coding is not the coding. I've never loved coding. I, you know, growing up, I, I love math. I love math for the sake of math, but I picked up computer science and program because of the things that you can build with it. And that's what fascinates me. Like, it's very much outcome driven. It's awesome that I can sit at my kitchen table and type on a laptop and produce something of value that everyone around the world can use. And that line of code can be run, you know, millions or billions of times. That's awesome. But like the actual coding itself is, oh, has always felt like a means to an end. And what you can build even with, with no code tools or limited coding is, I think it's, it's important not to limit yourself and I think knowing how things work, right? Like there's, there's a lot of things that are adjacent to coding, but you just need to know how they work. You don't necessarily need to know the coding. Like if you can go into Stripe and get that set up and just have an appetite for learning some of these things that seem like they're going to, you know, are blockers, but really it's just, it's just a matter of, you know, 
putting your head down and, and learning for a couple of days and picking these things up and not being afraid of technical things as a whole, even if you're even if you're not going to get coding. But yeah, it's it's so much so a a means to an end for me. Yeah, well, I think about one of the most prominent indie hackers, right? Peter Levels, the guy who created Nomad List mm -hmm. and a bunch of other little apps. Like his first really successful indie hacking app was like Nomad List, which was effectively right, a database of like the best places for remote workers to travel. But that app just started literally as a Google Sheet. So like zero coding, just like a Google Sheet that people could contribute to. And then you had to pay to get the link. Like, again, it's more about solving the problem and then just retrofitting the tools to the job. And like, I, I want to list off just a couple of like recent podcasts just for context, like this is just something I'm just, I have so much fun doing the podcast because it just helps me internalize this lesson that just for so long I thought about the wrong way. And I think so many people still think about backwards. Like the pattern of success I find with SaaS companies on this podcast, like it's all so simple. It's like there was a guy who created a speech and debate software company for like high schoolers that just like automated research. So he was just a nerd in high school and knew how to code, wrote code that automated all the research he did, you know, sold it to every high school in the country. Or like, I think, I don't know what, year you graduated college, but like we had the founder of Corsicle on this podcast. And that's like an app that he was in college, wanted to know when a seat opened up in the later class, built a scraper that looks at the class checker for his school, gets a notification when a seat opens and the thing that's a better schedule, boom, app for every college student in the country. We had the guy just last night, actually, from Remind 101, just like same story, just like wanted to know when his homework was due, built a spreadsheet to notify him when homework was due. And now that's an app used in like every public school in the country for teachers to tell students when their due dates are due via SMS. And it, like literally a billion API calls per month to Twilio to send that out. Just all of these stories to me are so exciting because it's just like, and again, how do you find these problems? The answer is like, do things, right? It's like start a podcast, take a job, be in an industry, talk to customers, just exist in the world, leave your apartments or like if you leave your apartments either in the literal sense of like going to events and talking to people that do things in like real world situations or leave your apartment in like the, the mental kind of metaverse sense and like in the academic definition, right? Like engage into the digital social world of like participating in discussions online and getting into niche subreddits and like existing in different communities. Of, of And then like there's just an infinite amount of unsolved small problems when you think really small details. But I want to now figure out for you specifically what the story is for the problem that led to your current company that you're building, Turnkey. And because mm -hmm. I, I think the story is that Wave was acquired. So I don't know like if you care to get into that or not, but like the Wave chapter closes and the Turnkey chapter opens. What was the like problem and how did you find it that led to this thing happening? Yeah, so speaking of going out there and building things and, and seeing what comes of it, the Trinkey chapter actually started before the Wave one closed. It started as an internal tool for Wave. So it's exactly what you're mentioning there. With Wave, we had a, a very big churn problem. So churn being customers canceling. And our cancellation rate was anywhere between 10 and 13% of customers month over month. So, you know, if we've got 100 customers, it's down to 90 or 87 at the end of the month. So... For us to, we would need to bring in a lot of new customers to to just combat churn. And uh, it was interesting. We realized we had this problem. We hit a growth ceiling. We weren't growing anymore because we were losing so many customers. And we basically stopped everything else and, and focused on this. And we ended up like hiring out contractors, consultants. We paid them tens of thousands of dollars. We're just like, hey, tell us what to do. Like, what are the best practices? What should we be doing? The, the entire experience on that consultation front and kind of our own research front was a little bit frustrating. There was not a lot of good information out there about best practices. The consultative services that we paid a lot of money for didn't really move the needle. And what we ended up doing was instead just looking at, okay, what are the, what are the biggest software subscription companies in the world doing? You look at Netflix, you look at Audible, and they all have this, number one, they have an, an offboarding flow where they figure out why you're canceling. And number two, some of them, like Audible, will give you an incentive to stick around, right? Like if you try to cancel Prime or Audible, they're going to say, okay, we'll give you, you know, another two weeks free, or we'll give you credit, or we'll give you half off, you know, something there where they try to retain you instead of just letting you cancel. And not not letting you cancel as in they're going to block you like Comcast or DirecTV. It's just, okay, let's use the cancellation as an opportunity to refresh this you know, relationship with the customer. Clearly something 
is not what it used to be. You know, the customer came here and they got value out of it and they're paying you and they're happy. And then something changed. And sometimes that's on your side. Sometimes there's a technical issue. But most of the time, it's it's just something with the customer and it's it's something out of your control. And it doesn't necessarily mean that they want to leave forever. It's, it might be there temporarily for Wave. A lot of people will start a podcast and then they will go on break for the summer. Then they want to come back. So for us, it was looking at these big companies, seeing what they're doing, and then creating a version of that in-house. So we created a personalized cancel flows based on you know, how long people have been subscribed, how much they've used the product. And this was the first version of Turnkey, which was we called Deflector, which was an in-house cancel flow for Wayu. Now, a couple months later, um, probably some six months later, we so we had been looking to sell Wave and ended up selling that early 2021. And since then, we we basically went straight into productizing Chernkey, what is now Chernkey, and making it you know the best possible version of that, so that anyone that runs a subscription service, whether or not it's it's software, but or not, any we do like box delivery services as well. Basically, anyone with a subscription service, we want it to be very easy for you to have a world class cancel flow in place very quickly. So with Chernkey, you know, it's a, a B2B business to business company versus Wave, which was B2C business to customer or it's more prosumer based, but it's been, it's been a whole different slew of problems compared to Wave, which has been challenging at times, but definitely very interesting. It's, it's way different than, than we thought it would be. You know, we've got, we had this playbook for growth and marketing, which worked very well for Wave and we tried to use it for Chernkey, just turns out. No, this is this is not the same thing, and you have to market it very differently. So it's it's been a big learning experience, and we we've, we've definitely had within the last year we've kind of found our footing, found a lot of traction. No, I think it's it's a fascinating idea. I, I really really like it quite a bit, and I love the story as well of internal tools. I think that kind of even back to like dispelling entrepreneurial narratives in terms of like problematic ones, like all of those stories I just told are kind of like cute in terms of like oh, as a high school student in this activity, or and I don't know, like say that to be a what's it called? Like condescending, right? I don't want to be condescending saying like those are cute, but like people listening to this are like, okay, well, I'm not in high school anymore. I'm not on some sports team. I'm not in some club and I'm not in college. I'm not going to build like the next ed tech app for students. It's like, I think the kind of adult version of that narrative is, that happens all the time is the productizing internal tools. Like that is a hundred percent transparently to anyone listening to this. Like a big part of my personal game plan is like, I have an agency right now. I'm solving problems in the data analytics space for a huge variety of businesses. And in the process of doing that, I've already started productizing internal tools, just not on having enough like revenue from the agency stuff to like start trying to build a SaaS on the side. But like the plan is like reach healthy revenue and the agency side of things and then start productizing like all of the problems we found. Like people start out in entrepreneurship. And like, I just wish I could find a problem. And like the short answer is just like join some other thing and try to do something difficult. And like you'll there you'll find no shortage of problems to solve and so i love this story the one mantra i've learned recently and i'm curious like what your experience with this has been because i kind of was expecting you to say like kind of the opposite of what you said in terms of like b2b being different you kind of said it like almost like it's been more difficult to some extent so i don't know if i was like hearing that correctly or not but the difference between like b2c is like generally speaking your previous business to some extent was actually b2b if you consider like a podcast a a business, right? Like, I mean, I have an LLC. It's a, it's a business. I would pay for something like Wave through the LLC, through the business bank account. But it's typically like a broke business, right? Versus like a funded software company that has subscription revenue. Like anyone who's actually measuring their subscription revenue to the point where they know their cancellation numbers is probably healthy enough to like afford something like this and tie it to revenue. Uh, there's the mantra though, just to finish the thought is... Something I learned, it's very, it's a bit crude. Something I learned from this guy, Daniel Fazio on Twitter, his name is Cold Email Lizard, and he teaches, has a coaching program. And the first thing he teaches us is like, stop trying to sell to poor people, which is just like a, a way of saying like, if your customers don't have any money, they're not going to be good customers because your business exists to make money. It's kind of like the, the, the parable is like, well, I'm going to help people write resumes to get jobs. It's like, yes, but they can't pay you because they don't have jobs. So it's like not good problem, not a good customer to solve that problem for. But with Chernkey, what's been your experience in terms of differences in B2B marketing thus far? And how have you been approaching it? Yeah, with B2C, so with Wave, or B2 Prosumer at least, it was a, everything seemed to scale 
very easily, right? Like the marketing materials, the online advertising, it's kind of just, okay, this seems to be working. Let's ramp it up. And there are just, there's customers all over the place. With B2B, I think it is easier to get your first, you know, maybe 1,000 or 5,000 or 10,000 in revenue because there are these these bigger personal relationships that you have with with customers and you can you can sell them a $2,000 a month contract, right? What we have found is difficult and as a bootstrapped company and there are three full-time founders working on it is it takes a lot of time if you're going to be selling something at, you know, one or $2,000 a month, having the time to work with them directly, get through all of the different procurement processes, right? Each, each person that we talk to, you know, are they a decision maker? Do they need to go back to somebody else? Do we need to have meetings and meetings and meetings? It's kind of been the story of the game. So it's been, it's been di- different, right? So what we thought would work and what we had hoped would work is that, okay, let's just create awesome content. There's, there was a, a dearth of content around retention. And we created a lot of good content around it. And that gets us, instead of getting us customers on that, that gets us demo meetings where we need to have more meetings. So I think once you hit the part where you can start cash flowing resources, customer support, and uh, people to, to field these demo calls, I think that's when it's what we've seen is, is really starts to ramp up. But um, so for me, my experience personally, and again, this is going to be different for everyone, is that the first couple thousand in, in revenue per month is probably easier for B2B. But then to scale that, you need to change how you're doing things in a bigger way than you need to change things with B2C. Like the first thousand customer, the first thousand in revenue for B2C, you can basically apply in just a bigger way for the next thousand to 10,000 in revenue versus B2B. It's been, okay, we need to change the story now that we're at this point and we need to figure out how to manage these scarce resources a little bit better. Yeah. I see like a lot of really, I'd say trendy, at least in circles I'm in. I like very familiar with, you know, I have the, I showed you earlier, flip my camera around this huge screen. I got your page open over here, like copy AI is super relevant. Hype Fury and Tweet Hutter are also super like kind of trendy SaaS startups, exploding topics. I'm a huge fan of them. It's really funny, honestly, because I'm very aware that like all four of those like do very well with their cancellation flows. It's like funny now in hindsight to like think about this because like I've definitely churned from Hype Fury. They've definitely recovered me a couple of times. And like, I, I don't know if I've actually purchased any of these other tools, but like exploding topics, their email marketing is just really well. I'm just kind of, it's just in a more expensive service. I can't really justify right now what I'm doing. But how did you get like these really big name early testimonials to kind of like, and have they actually, do they just look nice to a person like me or have these actually made a big difference in the sales process? Like has having these made a, a big, noticeable, attributable difference in like the B2B sales process? Like having these, at least in my opinion, like pretty well known in a lot of circles. Like uh, like like Riley Chase, he's the guy from Hostify, right? Mm-hmm. I've like followed him on LinkedIn forever. That's because he's it's just super esoteric. But if you've read MJ DeMarco's books. I haven't. Uh, okay. He has like as the another great resource. It's called the, yeah. the Fastlane Forum. It's like this okay, huge cool. online forum like very web 1.0 style mm-hmm. forum that's just like actually still really active. I find, I think those are like, this is a, a total sidebar, but like mm-hmm. places with, I'm going to not use the word sauce here because I need to like not use the word sauce like it's everyday parlance, but the places with the most alpha, maybe to alpha and sauce kind of mean the same thing in my opinion. Like the most just like, like Facebook, for example, like there's no alpha on Facebook, maybe in Facebook groups, like weird Facebook groups mm-hmm. that are still active, but like any survey like platform messaging platform like like subreddits but if it's like a web 2.0 like 2006 style aesthetic design forum like and there's still people active on it like that's where all the hidden gems are anyway like that's how i found riley chase like he like read the book told his whole story on there and then i followed him on linkedin and like have watched him grow like very quickly in the past couple years yeah he's killing it riley chase is it's uh it's really cool to see i would say with especially with B2B and especially with how many meetings and how many different people we need to talk to from each company, having those bigger customers and having the testimonials has been, it's been a great impact. I think if somebody from the team is like, hey, I, I stumbled across Chernkey, I think we might be able to use it. What happens is they send the link to somebody else on the team. Team goes to the, the marketing site and if they recognize any of those companies, you know, it gives it immediate credibility. So we found that has been really good. So 
and it's word of mouth is the other one and it's customer support is always going to be difficult and it's a, it's a developer product. So I'm on there a lot of times with developers and it takes a lot of time, but it's something we want to, I think on the product side, we've got the best of market and on the, the customer support side and just, you know, working with these people long-term, it's something that we want to continue to spend the time on, even as we grow, you know, we want to give that first class experience in terms of just working with people. And we've seen that pay off in long-term ways. So it's, it's difficult to justify almost spending so much time on one-on-one meetings with developer teams, even for smaller companies to just get them set up with everything. But I think long-term it's, it pays off in ways that are difficult to measure because there's no, you know, there's no UTM on the world word of mouth referrals, but um, I think it's just something you have to commit to long enough to start seeing that come back in. What would you say is like your, like, I see so many different ways this could go. Like, like again, subscription box, there's, there's just, I've been thinking a lot right about BB sales. That's been like my entire headspace for six months now, if not longer. And maybe you're not, I think you, I think you're the CTO, right? Mm-hmm. So Correct. maybe you're not the person to direct all these questions to, but like, what is the plan for this year for 20, we're recording this in pretty early 2023. You said like, mm-hmm. you kind of now have again, these 10 really solid case studies and testimonials. And now is like the time to like start, start to scale. What's the, the plan and strategy for doing that? Yeah. So year one was let's nail down our initial version of the product. And with B2B, it's a little bit different because especially with a billing product, it's like there can't be any mistakes here. A lot of times this phrase is used, all right, if you are launching something that you're not ashamed of, you waited too long. And I, I've never bought into that. I like having a lot of being proud of what I'm building, kind of take a craftsman approach to it. And for us, especially dealing with building stuff, it's like, all right, we can't launch anything that's half-assed. It has to be very good. Year two was scaling horizontally in terms of, okay, we started with a Stripe integration. Now we're going to build Chargebee and Braintree. And we're also going to add some, a lot of product features, analytics, and add in failed payment recovery. And coming into year three, we've got some, some more cash flow to, to reinvest in the product. And what I'm most excited about is we started on one side of the customer lifecycle with cancellations. And we have awesome data there in terms of the, all of the billing data, subscriptions, how people are using their, you know, how long people are staying subscribed and why they're leaving. And we want to move back up the customer lifecycle. So talk about like app specific usage data, collecting metrics on, okay, are they using this feature? Have they been active this month? How many users are, are doing that? And this is going to manifest itself in a couple different ways. First of all, it's going to be for predictive metrics. So forecasting MRR growth, forecasting churn prediction. And uh, second of all, it's going to be for proactive actions regarding that. So if you want to send proactive re-engagement campaigns, if people have not been engaging with the app and they're likely to churn, how can you get them you know, reinvigorated in the product? How can you show them why they signed up again, basically? And third of all, what I'm most excited for is we can actually use this data to give you better insight into your own product. And what features are people using that are most important for predicting how long they're going to stay subscribed? What features are, you know, give you basically direct product or data-driven product decisions on what is valuable to all of your customers? Because this is, it's such a, it's a difficult decision a lot of times as a product manager figuring out, you know, what direction should we, should we take this? There's always so many different directions you can take a product. It's very difficult. And in a lot of times you listen to a, a loud minority who maybe you're speaking with on technical cases and something's gone wrong, but a lot of times what you would rather do is, is step away from this and do it in a, a data-driven way, figure out what features are being used, which ones are providing the most value. So I'm really excited to, this year is going to be a big focus on just doubling down on the data side and allowing, kind of empowering customer success teams to make data-driven decisions. How white glove or scalable, I don't know enough about like standard quality of present day analytics for like your average SaaS company. But I'm thinking mm-hmm. from a very practical Google Analytics tagging perspective in terms of like a brand, like if a brand doesn't have like the tagging for the different events on their website to like know like the, the different features and like feature specific analytics and like usage of particular buttons and submenus and like things like that, like is that kind of a prerequisite? Or do you come in and offer like the consultative, like, okay, let's get you just to the point, like you're tracking everything correctly. And then 
because like that's very difficult for like a SaaS to do. Like I'm, I'm thinking like you have to have a pretty mature business, technically speaking, to you to just then come in and add value there. If like they have to have a lot set up very in a sophisticated way for like you to be able to come in and make predictive analytics out of it and make genuine recommendations and like a scalable automated way. Yeah, there's a couple of interesting things to dig into here. The first one is you can actually do a lot with just the billing data, which is interesting in itself. There have been models developed in the past, which will try to do, you know, churn prediction. And there are a lot of different things within the last, you know, three, four years in the machine learning world where a lot better models can be applied here. So the first step is with without any additional work on the company side to tag these events and and add those features in because you're right sometimes that does take a long time to do and and you need the resources to be able to do that so even before you do that by default we are tracking customer activity so if they have logged in which days they've logged in that combined with billing activity so we know when they have subscribed and when they pay their invoices if they leave why they leave those two things combined just themselves gives you a a ton of knowledge. And so in particular, if, if anyone listening is uh, digging into the machine learning world, you can use recurrent neural nets on this. It's It was actually a model commonly used for NLP, commonly used for language models. But essentially, instead of looking at, okay, this is a block of customer information and try to predict if the customer is going to churn or not. Instead, what you do is you look at it on a month by month by month basis, just as you, for instance, for translation tasks, NLP translation tasks, you look at it word by word and you, and you translate it back into a different language. For this, it's using basically the same models, the same uh, structure of the neural net, but you're using it for, okay, was this customer active this month? Did they pay their invoice? Did they think about canceling? Okay, let's move on to the next month. And this model is shown to be, you know, roughly two or three times more accurate than historically log regression models have been used for churn prediction. So I'm really excited to get this out to, we've done some some beta studies on a couple of companies and I'm really excited to get this out at scale to the rest of our customers. I think that uh, this is a nice sandbox for you. This is a cool sandbox for you to be able to be in, right? Just like- For sure. Yeah, like I can hear that really genuinely. It's very exciting to have this data. I've, I'm, I've always been a, a data nerd from the beginning. So to have all this to play around with and to- take all these developments within the world of AI and apply them very specifically to this problem that we're working on has been awesome. Yeah, I, again, I could I could chat for a very long time about like all of these product things because this is a lot of things that I think about. I want to ask some bonus questions that we might also kind of some product questions as well, mm -hmm. kind of like towards the end. But you had a, speaking of data visualization and like fun personal projects, one of like your more popular, this might've been several years ago, but you had a very cool Shark Tank data visualization that won several prizes or maybe one prize, I don't know. It won at least, it won a competition for data visualization. So it, there's some degree of sophistication there as well. What did you learn in terms of actionable insights? Like if you were to coach someone on Shark Tank game theory with the insights gathered from that report, what would you tell them? The most interesting things that fell out of that were some of the investors, and I forget who was who here. I would have to pull that up, but the some of them is still tried... online and free for anyone who does want to check their seats on this and find the name of the investor. Yeah. So some of them would try to invest on value, right? So some of them would try to get like a really good deal and they would only invest on on these these small investments for a a large percentage of the company. So I mean, whether you view that as as value investment or kind of betting early on versus other ones would would like to come in at a, a higher valuation for a smaller percentage of the company and invest at that stage of the company. So that was one of the more interesting things. I think Damon was very much like like to get in on the very early stages. And I think he's probably just goes down to what he likes to do in terms of growing businesses. That's interesting. So the, the deal size based on investor. Yeah, you had a lot of really cool breakdowns there. Thanks. So what else would you say is like the biggest low-hanging fruit for a subscription company to boost MRR besides just like billing flows? Increasing pricing. Increasing pricing? 
yeah, I would say increasing pricing. Um, a lot of people are hesitant to do it. I guess now with the economy, especially, it's, it's difficult to do. I think a lot of times as we develop something, we have the, and I say develop there, not just in the coding sense, but whatever we're selling, we have the tendency to want to sell it short and to underprice it. And I think what I've realized time and time again is that we can't sell these, these, these things that we build and we spend a lot of time on are very, can be very valuable for other people. And we want to avoid underpricing it. I think especially as a few people are complaining about pricing, we have a tendency to cut back on price and a lot of times do that too much so. If people I think aren't coming back at you at price at a pretty regular frequency or you know it's not something that's coming up a lot, I think increasing price is probably the, the best thing a lot of young entrepreneurs can do. Like that. Uh, one thing we were talking about with this startup specifically is that it's tied to revenue. I think that's one of the easiest ways to both mentally in your own head, understand, justify to yourself why you're worth more and also to your customer. How's that been difference in terms of like, and what's your story if you're like pitching a brand in a sales call in terms of like, this is worth this price because of this in revenue being next to the money? Yeah, we are very close to the money in terms of we track, have a very deliberate focus on how much revenue we are actually adding by virtue of having this cancel flow in place or by virtue of recovering failed payments. And you see this all over just on the on like the dashboard, the admin dashboard. As soon as you log in, you'll see a boosted revenue metric. And we try to be very transparent about how much money we're hopefully bringing extra for you. And it does take a couple of months to build up. It's kind of like a compounding interest thing where the first month, you know, there's, there's 100 people that pause their account. They're not paying anything, but when they reactivate two months from then after their pause is up, that's when you start to see the boosted revenue come in. So it's it's been a really big benefit on in terms of very easily and very transparently justifying our company's investment in us in terms of paying their monthly price. What we have seen a little bit of, and I guess this is the other side of being close to the money, is if this... So, the, I mean, there's the boosted revenue, which is people sticking around from the cancel flow. There's a lot of other things that we also provide. For instance, the cancellation insights, are there new reasons people are canceling? Are they trending? We run AI on the feedback that people give. So we um, try to use that to figure out what product features you can focus on. So there's a lot of other things that value that you can get from Turnkey aside from just the boosted revenue. So what we see occasionally is that companies will be too tied to just that one aspect of boosted revenue, you know, very close to the money and kind of forgo all the rest of it. But with that being said, like, it's always nicer to be, have this aspect of very clearly, this is at least your return on investment that you're getting. And that's something that, you know, coming from working on Wave where it wasn't clear, you know, people would, would share podcast videos and it wasn't even you know, unless they're running A-B tests, they're, they've got to take our word for it that these animated videos do better than just posting an image with audio behind it, right? So they've got to take our word for it on that. And it was, I think that's what always, I mean, we're, our ARPU, our average revenue per user on Wave was like $12 a month. So it just comes with, with the game of, I don't think that product is ever going to be able to charge more than 10 or $15 a month tops because it is so much so like, a tool in the sense that you use it and then you market and then hopefully people come in and listen to your podcast. And then even then you don't really see the money unless you're, you're getting advertisement from increased listens. So very much a, you know, it's, it's a leap of faith and hopefully you can, you can justify that or provide, I think it's important to as much as possible, do the research for customers. Like we did a, a ton of tests on, okay, how did these videos do on Facebook and on Instagram and on Twitter compared to just posting the audio. So we did we did a lot of research and I think the more of that you can do, the better because it basically starts chewing into these different leaps of faith that the customer needs to make. Is there anything specifically that you learned about podcast marketing that in another lifetime with more hours in the day and you felt like hosting a podcast, you're like, I saw a lot of successful podcast hosts and a lot of unsuccessful podcast hosts as the data person behind the scenes of this company. Any big learnings from that? Yeah, the 
The biggest thing we saw at Wave, and this was part of our churn problem, was this thing. And I mean, podcasting even has a, a phrase for it, pod fading, which is just people start a podcast and then they they give up on it. And it's something you probably know better than than most. It's just it's very it takes a lot of work to do a podcast. Like people are just like, oh, let me just hop on Anchor FM and and record this thing. That's not even the start, right? Like if you want to put together a quality podcast, it takes time and it takes commitment. And I think that's something you've got to internalize going into it. It's it can be fun, right? Like I'm sure you both have fun doing it. But if you want to do it for the long haul and you want to do it for getting out to a lot of listeners, it's not just a one week thing. It's a multi-year commitment to spending a lot of time on this. And it's something I think people are probably now starting to realize, but especially three years ago, like start a pandemic, which is everyone was hopping on and starting a podcast. And I think it was just a, an eye-opening experience for a lot of people, how much work actually goes into it. Definitely. Yeah. This By the time this episode is published, I'm fairly confident that it'll be more than three years after the first one was published for us. Just That's awesome. Chronologically speaking. Trying to think if I have a uh, final question for you here. One more, t- one more fun data insight question. I think mm-hmm. listeners will like, you did freelance work for the NBA and data analytics as well. That's very nice and sounds cool. Was it actually cool to do analytics work? And did you find out, like, what was that project? And what did you use data to learn or discover or help a team improve? Or maybe it was the league directly or something. Yeah, a little background on this. My friend and I, uh, about a year or two ago, we both love basketball. We love football and stats. And we started this project, per36.com. And the idea here is just being, all right, let's get sports. You know, they're on Twitter and stuff, there's, there's a ton of just these hot takes. It's like, all right, let's take a step back, get away from the hot takes and do very much data-driven sports journalism. And we this has just been an outlet for us to, to put together some really cool visuals and really cool analytics on specifically NBA and NFL data. And from that, within the first six months of, of doing that and working on it as a side project, uh, we both had really cool offers coming in in terms of working with teams or outside consultants or so both Shri and I ended up working briefly for Ben Falk, who runs an NBA analytics site called Cleaning the Glass. And Shri is still working there now. Ben's an awesome guy. And they are doing sports analytics for teams. So they build a platform of basketball analytics, which they sell to individual teams. And that's been awesome. So it, it was one of these stories where, and I think it's something you talk about a lot, where if you just start building something and stick with it for a while, and put out quality stuff, like people will come. So this was something even if, because we, we've we never monetized Per36. It's a hobby project. It's it's something we love doing. And But what we've seen from it is just a lot of really cool people who have come by and, and viewed it and we've gotten in touch with and talked with. This past year, I ended up working with the NBA directly, working with their stats and analysis team and doing some data visualization work for them specifically with defensive tracking data. So they've got all this data. You know, you you oftentimes see shot charts for offensive players and they've got this cool tracking data where, you know, 24 frames per second, they've got every player, the coordinates of them. And you can use that to figure out who's guarding who, how far away people are, and even do things like, all right, is this a pick and roll play versus pick and pop? And so what I worked on there a lot was basically creating defensive dashboards for okay, what are these matchups? Who are they matched up against? And who are the best defenders? Where are they good at defending? Are they good at getting in the passing lane? A lot of things focused on that from tracking data. That is fascinating. Where can people specifically learn about Turkey if they're interested in this? Who, in terms of like uh, metrics, is a good fit to like actually like a qualified customer in terms of like genuinely being interested? I don't know if there's like a minimum like monthly revenue where it's like worth their time, like a, you know, statistically significant number of customers or amount of monthly revenue, like this is worth the effort. Like, so like, you know, your pitch, like if you're a SaaS company doing at least $10,000 a month, blah, 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 turnkey, Mm -hmm. I don't know. Yeah. We work with companies of all sizes. We work with people with 10 customers and we work with people with hundreds of thousands of customers. And it's something where it's, it doesn't take long to set up. It's, you know, we take care of all the billing logic for you, the the discounts, the pauses, the the cancellations. So, I mean, one of my favorite things actually 
is getting on the phone with these people who are working on early stage startups and talking to them about it and just having a conversation about it and getting them set up with Turnkey, even if it's not, you know, boosting a crazy amount of revenue because they have low cancellation volume, it's a step where they can they can put that in there and make sure they're getting feedback from every customer as they cancel. It's it's very difficult once somebody cancels to send out an email and to get them to respond about why they canceled. So doing that proactively is great. And it's as you scale, you know, every every customer is, is so valuable as you're scaling. And it's really important to, I want everyone to be able to focus on the product they're building and not have to worry about all this retention stuff. That's why we built it. So genuinely happy to hop on a call with, with anyone selling subscription. Amazing. This has been a blast. I'm very bullish on Shurky. I see it. I got it. It's exciting. So thank you for going on the show and great chat today. Thanks so much for having me. That closes out this conversation with Rob Moore from Churnkey. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you had as much fun as I had. Three takeaways for me, and then we will be moving on. The, the first takeaway is the value of productizing internal tools as a way to come up with business ideas. That's what I've done. So through this podcast, I had to have chapter summaries produced. I realized I could use AI to do that. So I built a tool that does it. And now I've gone to the market and selling that as my own software company. That's exactly what Rob did as well. He was working for these software companies. He was realizing they had all these techniques to prevent people from canceling and leaving. And then he bundled that into a product that he's now selling to the market. So when you start with a problem first, which is always the case with internal tools, you didn't build them for fun. You built them because there's something that you wanted done better. Then take those to market. Life just works out a lot better. Second is to just get started. So if you don't have ideas, you don't have skills, the thing to do is just find a project and find a way to contribute. And over time, you will assemble a portfolio of skills and ideas and connections that when you have your good ideas, you'll be glad you have gotten started and put yourself in the proverbial game. Third and final takeaway is that there's always a hybrid way. So so many people think that since they have a job, they can't start a business or because they're working for a startup, they can't do any freelancing, but there's almost always a way to do a little bit of both. So Rob had a lot of good examples of those hybrid paths. So it's just not thinking that options are always so black and white, so binary and considering is there a hybrid path where I could start on the things that I want to do right now without dramatically changing my circumstances. That is all from me for this conversation. Thank you so much for listening. Subscribe to The Lewis and Kyle Show wherever you are watching it if you want more from us. Otherwise, we'll be back in roughly one week with a new episode. Thank you so much for listening, and I will see you then. Bye-bye.